Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. James chapter 3, verses 13 to 18. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbour bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, of the devil. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray as we stand. Father God, we are indeed hungry for your wisdom and wonderfully you have told us in this book of James that uh, when we lack wisdom uh, that you will give generously without finding fault and so we do ask for your wisdom this night. Uh, Wisdom from heaven. uh, Wisdom that can change us. uh, Wisdom filled with grace to make us like your son. And so Father, please speak that wisdom to us tonight. Give us humble hearts before it. Humble hearts to hear and to heed uh, what you would say. We pray this for our good and your glory. Amen. Amen. Well, please take a seat. And please uh, turn back in your Bibles to uh, the book of James, chapter 3, uh, page 1215 in the church Bibles. 1215, uh, James 3, and we're, we're kicking off at verse 13. Let me ask you as you find it, are you a wise person? Uh, Are you someone who gets life? Are you cluey when it comes to life? Do you know how to live well? Have you got life worked out? I suspect in one sense most of us here would have a pretty decent claim to being a person who gets life, who can live wisely. Uh, Most of us materially successful, relatively speaking. Uh, Friends, families, hobbies, holidays fill our lives. Uh, We understand the rules of life. We're polite. We pay our taxes. We get on well with others. Uh, We get life. Now, perhaps we wouldn't want to claim that for ourselves, but maybe we're hoping that if others observed our life, they would say, now there is a wise person. So perhaps when James asks in chapter 3, verse 13, who is wise, let him show it by his good life, we might feel content that we'd have something to show for it. Who are the wise? Who lives well in this world? It's the question that James asked the first readers of this letter. Do you remember their situation as we've gone through James in these weeks? Jewish people from Jerusalem who had heard the gospel of the Lord Jesus and become believers, become followers of our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, as he's called at the start of chapter 2. Believers who became, uh, became a gathering in Jerusalem, taught by the apostles. A wonderful time of rich fellowship they enjoyed as they became believers. The church grew. 
But the mood in Jerusalem changed very rapidly. The church came under a fierce persecution and most of them were forced to flee, scattered from Jerusalem, blown out into the surrounding nations. Adrift they were now from the moorings of comfortable church life in Jerusalem, detached from what would have been relative material well-being compared to what they now experienced. And so James, still back in Jerusalem, writes, do you remember, to urge them to persevere in faith, keep going in the midst of a world where they're now beset with trials and temptations and disorder, all these things sort of bashing against their faith. Well, how does a wise person approach life in a world like that, a world really like ours? Now show me the wise man in Sheffield. What are they doing? Well, surely in an attempt to live wisely in the real world, wanting the good life again as they would have wanted, buffeted by trials, what do you do? What's the wise way forward? It's simple, isn't it? Now, when in Rome, do as the Romans do. Now start to adopt the wisdom of those around you who live well in your new surroundings. You want to live well in this world, well then start living as the world does. And so what does such a life look like? What does it mean to live wisely in a world like ours? Well really as we've gone through James and seen the issues of concern that he has raised, we've seen what wise living, understanding living looks like in our world. The wise man, do you remember, we've seen these things as we've gone through. The wise man handles trials. Our wise living is lived by the simple equation, less trials equals more joy. And so if I can control that equation, then I will live well. Now the wise man understands that I need to manipulate my circumstances to avoid trials. The wise man knows that in this world you have to compromise. This is a messy world. Motives are messy, relationships, values, priorities, they're all messy. Wisdom in this world is the ability to compromise when necessary to ensure a favourable reception from others. That's what the wise do in our world at all levels, don't they? Politicians, church leaders, work colleagues, family members, you need to learn to compromise. The wise man or wise woman pursues favour. Remember we saw that in chapter 2. Wise life is about arranging my relationships to gain favour from others. A life is about being on the inside, being in the inner circles, not missing out. A life, as we saw as we went along in James, is about self-protection. Sometimes, perhaps often in a world like this, the wise way forward is to live self-protectingly of my time, my energies, my resources, my family, my career, my holidays. Because in a world as messy as this one, sometimes it's hard enough just keeping my head afloat, let alone helping others. After all, who else is going to protect my interests if I won't? Surely if we all just look after ourselves, the world will get on just fine. It is the the ethic, the wise way of the whole Western economic system. The wise man or woman keeps their nose clean. And sometimes as a Christian, the smartest thing to do in a messy world like this is just play it safe. The wise life is lived by an ethic of avoidance. And as we saw last week at the start of chapter 3, the wise person knows sometimes you just don't back down. In a world that is competitive with pushy people, sometimes the wise way forward is to use your tongue as a weapon. 
to always have an answer, a defence, a justification, a, a smooth word to secure favour and a dismissive word for someone who is of no value to us. Well, there it is. As we've seen throughout James, the shape of wise life in a world like this. Uh, to which we say, uh, and we want to say as we hear those descriptions, no, no, we, we know that's not wisdom. That's not how I approach life. That's not how I teach my children to approach life. Uh, to which James says, really? Then how come as we've gone along in this letter and uh, he says, I've spoken of trials and playing favourites and ignoring the needs of others and misuse of your tongue. Each of those things has left you feeling exposed. And there's more to come in the weeks that follow. He'll speak of our judgment of one another, our arrogant approach towards the future, even our capacity to lie and cover up to cover up our lack of wisdom. Now, while we protest that we know this isn't wisdom, uh, our actions beg to differ, which uh, leads us to a one or another conclusion. Either we are trying in this world to live foolishly if we know that's not wisdom, or we suspect, and I think this is probably what it is, we suspect that there is wisdom in these approaches if we want to live well in this world. And so there it is. And when you understand life in this world and act wisely, you end up living like the world. It seems the logical, the, the logical path, the path of least resistance. And consider how such an approach takes place in our lives in a thousand moments in each and every day. Uh, let me take just one small example. And in the context of uh, where we're up to in James, he's been speaking of our, our tongue and how we use our tongue. So let me take this example, just a very small one. Now consider someone you're in a relationship with who frustrates you in some way. It could be anything. It could be family, it could be work, it could be someone at church. It could be the person sitting right next to you right now. And you're in the middle of a conversation with them and they pick you up on something you've said or done. They criticise you. And now your mind is racing. Have they said that because they're committed to my good? Is that what they're doing? They mean me good by saying this. That's what they're doing by criticising Or perhaps do they mean me harm? How does a wise person respond? What's the best thing to do in a world like this when you face criticism like that? Well, surely I need to protect myself. And so surely the safe bet is to assume that they are meaning to do me harm. And I want the comfortable life. I want things to be comfortable and secure. So I may ignore the comment or retreat to some sort of self-protective cave and hope it all blows over. But as we do that, we also begin to make mental readjustments, don't we, about that person? In my heart, that person is now out of my inner circle. Because those close to me, those around me, are for me, and I'm not sure this person is. I may even return fire with some sort of angry response or reciprocal criticism. I may even take the opportunity to speak slander about them to others, which of course will further confirm their evil intentions in criticising me in the first place. And over time, I will mentally cover up whatever truth lay in their criticism. I will leave the whole experience unscathed. Now, just one small example played out a thousand times each day in the schoolyard, at the campus, uh, workplace, homes, churches. Now, that's how life works. The wise response in this world is hard resistance, avoid difficulties, live self-protectingly, fight back, justify, cover up, survive, survive. 
Why do we do it? Why walk that path? Why approach life that way? And we all do. Well, as we've gone through James, we've seen his answer. Uh, Here in this disordered world, where we're trying to persevere uh, by faith in Jesus Christ, that we're trying to do that, but as we do, as we live, life comes along and crashes into us. Like some uh, wave on the sea, James 1 said. Such as in this little example I've just given. And there in that moment, we lack the wisdom to know what to do. And there in that moment, I grow to doubt God's wisdom has much to offer me in how to respond. Now, how easily my faith is just Sunday sermons and holy hymns and sleepy small groups. There in the fray of some hurtful criticism from another, I don't seek heavenly wisdom, even though he offers it to me generously. No, there in that moment, I seek an altogether more practical wisdom more present wisdom, a wisdom that, do you see it there in verses 14 and 15? It says it doesn't come from heaven, but from below. Verses 14 and 15 says, my counsellor in that moment is not the God of heaven and earth, the one who has promised in all things he is growing me towards maturity and completeness. No, there in the fray, I turn to the counsel of this miserable trio. Do you see them there in verse 15? The world the flesh and the devil. They're my counsellors. Sin, the world and the devil. Tell me, I wonder if that trio sounds familiar to you. Uh, If you're an Anglican, it it might well do. Uh, It's in the baptism of a little child. Every time we baptise a little child and adults as well, just near the end of the baptism service, they are given a charge and here is what we, we tell them to do. Fight bravely, little one, under Christ's banner against sin, the world, and the devil. And it's almost at that point, especially with infant baptism, do you think, now steady on, Vicar, it's all getting a bit too serious. It's just a little child. Why are you telling him to fight bravely against those sort of foes? Well, it's because of what James is saying here. This is a battle not played out in the little details of life. Now, that's where this fight happens. That's where their counsel becomes very attractive to us. So let's look for a moment at this wisdom from below that we find so addictive. Now firstly, in verse 15, as I said, you see its source. Firstly, it is earthly. It's from this world. It's transitory wisdom that fades just like the world it comes from. Earthly also in, in the scriptures it means that it stands opposed to God's purposes. Here is rebellious wisdom that hears God's purposes and says, no, I want something else. Secondly, the source is unspiritual, of the flesh, of my own sinful desires. The part of us where we hold self-rule, and where we're not ruled by God's purposes, but by our own wants. That's the wisdom I call on in that moment. And thirdly, its source, and most seriously, is of the devil. And the father of lies, whose greatest lie is to convince us that God is not committed to our good and we need to take charge of our good for ourselves. So there it is, the source, sin, the world and the devil. And what happens to a heart when it heeds that wisdom? Well, you see two markers of what happens to a heart in this passage. Uh, James repeats them in verses 14 and 16, just in case we miss them. Two markers, bitter envy and selfish ambition. The more we draw on that wisdom, the more that fruit 
will be seen in our lives. Bitter envy, that is grief at another's good. Can you imagine anything more obscene than that? And yet that's what we produce. And selfish ambition, commitment to our good above others. What a destructive duo. And what does a heart like that live like? Well, we've seen it all throughout the letter. That's what James has been on about again and again in this letter. Fearful response to trials, favoritism, misuse of the tongue. In other words, verse 16, it leads to disorder, a double-mindedness, double-heartedness. And from that, every evil practice we could conceive of. It seems logical, doesn't it? Want to live wisely in this world, live as the world does. But James is saying to us here that uh, that sort of wisdom has absolutely nothing to boast in. Uh, For it is built on a lie that promises much and yet delivers only disorder. And so who is the wise man then? If this uh, so-called good life that our world would hold up is not the good life, uh, who is the wise man? Well, uh, have a look at the other path that James sets before us here. It's again in verse 13. Now, who is the wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in humility that comes from wisdom. Now there it is, it's wonderful, isn't it? Our God's definition of the good life. If you were to ask the living God, to describe the good life. What does it mean to live well in this world? There it is, fruitful humility. Isn't it amazing? That's what God's marker is for a life well lived, fruitful humility. And why is the good life marked by humility? Because humility is the singular authentic sign that you have accepted God's wisdom, the gospel, which is the only thing in this world, the only word in this world that will give you a real understanding of this world. The only thing that can give you a wise heart, that is a humble heart, Now let me say tonight, whether you're a believer or not tonight, uh, here is what God is saying to you tonight. If you want to live wisely in this world, you cannot do it other than heeding this wisdom. There is no other way. You see, the wise man is the one whose heart has been humbled by the word of truth, the gospel. They accept the reality of life. They abandon the deception that they are self-made, self-glorifying creatures. Instead, they accept the word of truth that declares this to them. We've heard it in James. They accept the word that tells them that every good and perfect gift they have comes from the Father of heavenly lights. My life, my breath, everything else comes from his hand. Uh, Accepting that truth makes you wise, doesn't it? As you tremble before his fatherly, providential goodness, absolutely everything I have has come from him. That's got to make you humble. And even more so when you see that this one who loves to give good gifts has given you his very best gift, his son, and new life in his son. It's got to make you humble when you know that his son loved you and freely gave his life for you. It's got to make you humble when you see that he's given his life for you so that you can be a a new creation, we were told in 1 verse 18. You're a kind of first fruits of a whole new world that God is bringing about. And here's why that should uh, cause you to be humble. Because that news shatters your self-esteem. Is there a more overrated human characteristic than self-esteem? 
Uh, God's true estimation that the gospel gives us of me and you is this. You are broken, utterly broken. It took recreation to fix me. That's how messed up I was. I was powerless without him. I was dead without him. The mess I'd made of my life should humble me. Who am I in this world? Who, who am I? I'm the one who brings the mess. I'm the problem. You're the problem. It takes recreation to fix us, not renovation, not re education, not recalibration, recreation, whole new beginning. That's what it took, and he did it. At the cost of his son's life, he did it. He chose to do it freely, sovereignly, graciously. That's enough to cause you to bow the knee, isn't it? To humble your heart, to stop its restless striving. God is for me. And even more should it cause you to be humble when you realise that the wisdom of heaven declares that he's only just begun his work. Remember that verse we saw back in 1 verse 4? That his good purposes for us don't just stop at new birth. No, in all things, even in trials, he is growing me to maturity, to completeness, lacking for nothing. He's making me like his son. He chose me to be like him. He chose you too. Does it cause you to tremble? Does it humble your heart? It should end its restlessness. Your cup overflows with favour. God's favour rests on you. That's what the wisdom of heaven does to a human heart. That's how you spot a wise person in this world, a heart that is not after anything that it doesn't already have in Jesus, a heart at peace because the word of truth, because this heart is deeply convinced that God is king, he is sovereign and he is gloriously good and he is utterly committed to my good. Now, friends, what uh, James is saying to us in this simple little passage is the more we humbly accept that wisdom from heaven, the more our hearts will be changed, changed to function as they were always meant to. No longer do our hearts beat to the disordered beat of prideful self-love, but freely beat as God's own heart does, humble love of the other. Only the wisdom of heaven can bring about that freedom. If you look in verse 17, James paints a picture of what this free life looks like. Have a look, it's amazing. If we humbly accept the wisdom of heaven, it will free us to live, do you see it there, purely. It seems a bit sort of blah, doesn't it? Give me something a bit more exciting. All this wisdom of heaven, what does it do for me? It lets me live purely. But don't think sort of sterile life. I think of an addict finally getting clean. The more we accept this wisdom, the more I am freed from the useless and damaging behaviours that wisdom from below leads to, freed from bitter envy, freed from selfish ambition. The more I accept the wisdom of heaven, the more I see I don't need to do that anymore. I'm off the treadmill. I'm not promoting myself for fear I'll miss out. I'm his, he loves me. He is sovereign through all the fray of life, working for my good. So of this life, fearful comparison, selfish ambition, I'm out And wonderfully, not just freed from that, but freed to something. Freed, uh, verse 17, to live peaceably. Freed to live in a whole new way. Peaceably. 
The old dynamic of my human relationships that used to be marked by self-love, you know, where we sort of bounce around this world as if we're all satellites, as if we're all actors on a stage, each of us in our own play, a one-man play, and we're the star. And all these other people are getting in the way. Well, the wisdom of heaven shatters that. This ain't your show, princess. You're not meant to be on centre stage. His name is Jesus and he is glorious and good and he loves you. And he chose you to have new life leading to maturity and completeness so that you would love the other. And so finally now I'm free to operate in my relationships as one who promotes peace. Again, peace, a bit like purity, it sounds a bit blah. Peace and quiet, is that all he's offering you? But there's nothing quiet about this peace. No, it is busy and it is beautiful. Peace, shalom. It is God's deepest blessing, life to the full, relationships that work, relationships that reflect God's own relationship of father, son, spirit, relationships that are committed to the good of the other. Not prideful, anxious self-love, but humble, peaceful love that comes from a heart that is humbled by God's love. And exhibits that through humble love of the others. Well, that's the fruit of the wisdom of heaven. Peaceful living. It's radical. It's beautiful. Have a look at verse 17. All the ways this peaceful living is described, they're all relationship words, shalom words. I'm free to be considerate. To be gentle, to be fair, generous. I'm free to give people the benefit of the doubt. (laughs) Free to not fearfully rush to the conclusion that they're against me. And even if they are, free to be gentle in response because the wisdom of heaven has stilled my heart from needing man's approval. Free to be submissive. Wow. Free to yield to another's persuasion and not be gullible, but willing to defer to the mind of another. Free to be teachable. How destructive the unyielding mind is in a relationship, in a marriage, in a workplace, in a church. Well, the one who is being made wise by the wisdom of heaven is teachable. Uh, Freed to be full of mercy and not giving to another what they deserve. Can you see the power of promoting relationships of peace that that has? At last, the cycle of ungrace is broken. To respond with mercy to the one who treats us wrongly, that changes everything. And it is the pattern of God's dealing with us. We're freed to be full of that. Uh, freed, uh, do you see it there, verse 17? Freed to be full of good fruit. I love that one. It's, it's almost like, oh, well, aren't these all fruits? And I think what James is doing is he's saying, uh, I can see the danger of this list that I'm giving you. You're going to go home from this list and you're going to write them all down and you're going to put them on your fridge and you're going to say, that's my to-do list this week. I'm going to be considerate. I'm going to be submissive. I'm going to be merciful. Yes, must try harder. It's as if we're, we, we consider ourselves a tree and we go down to the co-op or the fruit shop or wherever and we buy as much fruit as we can and we sort of tape it to ourselves. And so now I'm this tree full of fruit. Look at me. But you go out into the world looking like that, apart from looking ridiculous, the slightest wind of trial, uh, that fruit will be blown off in a moment. Now this fruit can't come any other way than from a changed heart and only the wisdom of heaven can change that heart the to do of this passage is not this list it is what James has been saying to us all along humbly accepting the wisdom of heaven planted in you 
freed finally in verse 17 to be impartial and sincere without prejudice, without pretense, uh, not peaceable to some and not others, not peaceable to make myself appear wise, but because I have accepted the wisdom of heaven he's given me. Well, let me conclude. I think this really is a key passage for us. Just a short little reading that can change everything. It's a wonderful picture of really what we've been looking at all the way through James. Remember back in 1 verse 4 where I said, this is your God's heart's desire for you. Maturity, completeness, lacking for nothing. Well, verse 17 is what that looks like. Now, this is a picture of a human fully alive. It's the fruit that comes from humbly heeding the wisdom of heaven. Humble peacemakers. And as we look at it, we want to say, wow, yes, but that's not us. But it is Jesus. He is the one walking before us in verse 17. And God has promised that as we humbly heed his word, he is making us like him. Miraculous, isn't it? But it is what he has promised. As we close in verse 18, James leaves us with a picture of this miraculous creature at work in our world. A one who in the midst of this disordered world is sowing altogether new seeds, fruit from another world, Seeds of peace. Can you imagine if this week ahead for all of us in all our relationships, work, home, church, neighbours, shopkeepers, you name it, all of us busy at this work, sowing seeds of peace. And what a witness we would be as people asked after the source of this remarkable fruit. It will not happen by a vow to change tonight. Are taping this fruit on ourselves like some parody of a Christmas tree. The first wind of trial will blow the stuff off us. It can only come in the fray of life as we humbly accept the wisdom from heaven. Only if there in the midst of the trials of real sorrows and real griefs that will come, there in the midst of frustrating, messy relationships, there as our old habits of envy and selfish ambition die hard, there as we're tempted to sort of lash out with angry words, There as we wait and wait and wait and wait upon his promise to good purpose to bear fruit in our lives. If there in the fray of all that, we humbly accept the word of truth that our God is sovereign, he is the king, and that he is very good, and there in the midst of all of that, his plan for me is to prosper. He is working for my good that we may be like his glorious son, mature, complete, and lacking no good thing.